Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. The 2022 midterms may seem as if they are in the far-off distance, but one Democrat is already thinking about them and worrying about them. The word he uses is scary. And that Democrat is David Shaw, and he's my guest on the podcast this week. David Shaw is a data analyst, a bit of a data wizard, if you ask me. He dives deep into the numbers, into the polling, and into the voting figures, particularly from the November 2020 election. And what he's seen there has him deeply concerned. Something about him we should mention is that he is extremely young. He's just 30 and worked for the Obama campaign, when he was even amazingly just 20. But he has won the ear of senior figures in his party, to the point where Politico magazine recently wrote that there is a cult of Shaw in today's Democrats. He's not afraid to speak very candidly about what he sees in the numbers, and occasionally that has got him into trouble. So when I caught up with David Shaw, my very first question to him was, how does somebody like him get to be the Democrat of the hour? Well, you know, like all professional stories, I think being at the right place at the right time. You know, I first got my start working for the Obama campaign in 2012, where I built kind of their election forecasting models, kind of Nate Silver style stuff. I think what's new is that there's really a pretty massive political and data industrial complex I'd say there are probably hundreds of different people uh, in the Democratic Party who do experiments and build models and all of that different stuff. And, you know, I I think the the main difference is that all of that traditionally has been very private. You know, politics is a zero-sum game, but I think that now people in the field are starting to realize that there's a lot of value to the public understanding the things that parties have been thinking about for a long time. You were 20 years old when you were doing data for the Obama campaign. Is that freakishly unusual about you or are the kind of people doing this for presidential campaigns that terrifyingly young? I was definitely uh, one of the younger people, you know, in the campaign headquarters. But I, I think that it is a big problem in politics. Everyone is extremely young. I'd say, you know, when I was in the Obama campaign, the median age of people in my department was maybe like 25 or 26. My boss, who greeted the president, was 28. Something I like to say is that in the context of the U.S., white people with a college degree who are less than 34 years old are only about 5% of the electorate. 
but they're probably a majority of people who actually work on campaigns. And I think that that's a big problem just because we're so different than the people that we're trying to persuade or the people we're trying to turn out. Yeah, we, we're going to get into that um, in, in a major way, because I know that's a very core part of your thesis about where the Democratic Party might be going wrong. But just in, ter- in terms of the Democratic Party and where you fit into it, just tell us something about your own personal politics, because I think when people know more about the prescriptions and remedies you're proposing for the Democrats, I think they might be surprised to hear about your own personal position on some of the issues. So just to give Phyllis in on that, you know, presidential candidates you've backed in the past and so on. Basically, everyone subcontracts to the same data vendors. And so I've worked with, you know, campaigns like the Sanders campaign, the Warren campaign. I did a lot of extensive work for, you know, progressive and left wing and DSA back candidates across the country. And, you know, I personally identify uh, as a socialist. Uh, And I think that this would really surprise a lot of external observers, but there are a lot of very left wing people. I'm not the only one who are kind of embedded in the Democratic Party structure. Politics is not a very pleasant field to work in. The hours are very long. The pay is low. A lot of it can be very unglamorous. And the people who do it tend to be people who are really ideologically committed one way or the other. We're so excited. We're so excited. America spoke. We won. We won. So excited. Just let's start, though, with what you saw in the data that got you worried when others were not worried. And I'm thinking particularly of last autumn or November 2020. Democrats and let's face it, people all around the world were popping the champagne corks in celebration at Joe Biden's defeat of Donald Trump. You, however, were slightly pacing the floor and getting anxious. And that's because you saw things in the numbers from 2020 that others had not seen. Just talk us through what you've seen and the picture that paints. In 2016, there was really a massive realignment on education lines in the US and where college-educated affluent white people have trended toward the left, while working-class white and non-white people have trended toward the right. And in the context of the US, and you know, I think this, there's truths to this in Britain too, this is a really big problem because America's electoral institutions are just not designed for coalitions based on urban professionals to win. Just to talk through some numbers to illustrate this point, in 2012, Barack Obama got 52% of the two-party vote, and Hillary Clinton got 51.1% of the two-party vote. In any other country, except maybe Britain, going from 52% to 51.1% would not be a very big deal. But in the context of the US, because there were these massive changes in the electoral coalitions of both parties, the bias of the electoral college went from being about one point biased in favor of Democrats to being three points biased in favor of Republicans. And in 2020, it got worse. Joe Biden did better than Hillary Clinton did. He got 52.3% of the vote. But if he had gotten 52% of the vote, he would have lost, despite winning by millions and millions of votes. Uh, And we only have the barest majority in the Senate that is still based on representatives from now very red states like Ohio or West Virginia that are almost certainly going to lose once uh, 2024 comes along. Even perhaps when 2022 comes along. I mean, you're looking at midterm elections. You've been saying that you're pretty scared by what you're seeing, because as you've just said out there, you know, everyone remembers that Joe Biden won. But your point is he won really by a whisker, just 0.3 of a percentage point. 
would have denied him the White House. And those underlying numbers, those shifts, meant that it was by a razor-thin victory in the House and in the Senate. And that's because groups that people normally think are solid for Democrats, actually, and I've seen this in other things you've said, you know, even, for example, black voters and Hispanic voters, just a bit shifted from Democrats, from Joe Biden's Democrats to Donald Trump's Republicans. I mean, amazing in a way. But all of that whittled down that Democratic vote. And that's what's making you worried and anxious about the midterm elections next year. Yeah, just to give some concrete examples. If you look at white voters without a college degree who make less than $25,000 a year, Barack Obama won that group by two points. And Donald Trump in 2020 won that group by more than 20 points. If you look at Hispanic voters, which were a really big part of you know, the story in 2020, we, we fell something like 9%. You know, some, almost one in 10 Hispanic voters switched from Clinton to Trump. And if you look county by county or state by state, there are counties in South Texas that voted for Democrats, not even narrowly, but for by 40 or 50 points for over 100 years. And Donald Trump either won or narrowly lost those counties. You know, in Florida, Florida was one of the only states to be more Republican in 2020 than uh, 2016 by a sizable margin, exactly because there was a 14-point swing among Hispanics against us. In 2020, we ran the most popular person in our party, whose last name wasn't Obama, against literally the most unpopular person to ever run for office. And we still only won by 0.3%. And that really shows what we're up against if we don't make changes to our structural coalition. I just want to dive deeper into this shift among black and Hispanic voters, because I think that's the thing that would surprise people. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump who even his good friends would say, admit was often a crude and bigoted politician towards ethnic minorities. The idea that he actually increased his vote with, say, Hispanic voters, and even less dramatically with black American voters, after four years of everything he said, would just have people's heads spinning. So explain to us how that has happened, in your view. What, what accounts for, you know, yes, the Democrats still overall won more black voters and more Latino voters, Hispanic voters than the Republicans did. But there was a swing towards the Republicans among those groups. What explains it from your knowledge of the numbers? I I think the important thing is to look at ideology. In the US, we measure this by asking people if they identify as liberal, moderate or conservative. And, you know, what's fascinating about that is that even though partisanship varies quite a bit by race, ideology does not vary by race. Roughly, the same percentages of Black, Hispanic, and white voters identify as liberal, moderate, or conservative. 20% liberal, 40% moderate, 40% conservative. Uh, but partisanship differs quite a bit. And the only way mathematically that, that works out is that you know among white voters, ideology is very correlated with partisanship. Democrats get about 90% of white liberals, and Republicans get about 80% of white conservatives. But among non-white voters, Historically, Democrats have won non-white conservatives by very large margins. And if you look at the 2016 versus 2020 data, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won Hispanic conservatives by 20 points. And in 2020, Donald Trump won them by 20 points. And that, that's the whole difference, that non-white conservatives are starting to vote more like white conservatives. 
what accounts for that shift? I, I get the idea that uh, if people are conservative, in a way, it makes sense that they vote for the more conservative party. But for years, they didn't. They stuck with the Democrats. Have the Democrats done something different in recent years that has made black or Hispanic conservatives think, why am I continuing to vote Democrat? It makes more sense, given that I am a conservative, to vote Republican. Is it their fault? Or was it something Republicans were doing that made themselves more attractive to you know, the black or Latino conservatives? There's really been a change in the way that the Democratic Party talks and the way that the Democratic Party brands, because as college educated white people have become a larger share of the party, they haven't just increased their numbers. There's a lot of ways in which college educated people have a lot of disproportionate power. They donate at higher rates. They consume more political information. They're more likely to run for office. They're more likely to be staffed in political campaigns. And I think that, you know, what we've really seen is that the Democratic Party has really transformed itself from a coalition of moderate working class white voters and working class non-white voters and college educated liberals to instead being a more straightforwardly ideological party. And that has caused more polarization on ideological lines, which is something of a, of a loser, given that only 20% of the population identifies as liberal. Uh, just to give some concrete numbers there, you know, when we surveyed thousands of Hispanic voters after the election, the single biggest uh, predictor of switching from Clinton to Trump was attitudes toward crime and attitudes toward policing. And I think, you know, that really highlights that there are a lot of these very hot button social issues that kind of define how people ideologically identify. Culturally, working class white people and working class non-white people have a lot more in common with each other than they do with educated white liberals. I feel as if we're tiptoeing around one particular slogan here, which is defund the police which many you know, of the Democrats you're speaking about, the white college-educated left-wing Democrats, embrace, and some obviously some black college-educated liberal Democrats as well. I'm getting from what you're saying that, that a phrase like that is a massive turnoff to small-c conservatives, both white and black and Hispanic. How important is that one phrase? I mean, I, I don't want to single out this one single phrase. Defund the police is extremely unpopular. It is something that I think played a big role in, in the backlash that we saw in 2020. But I think that defund the police floating to the top of the narrative and being something that was embraced publicly by a lot of large mainstream progressive organizations is a symptom of like a much bigger problem of working class white voters and working class non-white voters not actually having a voice in the party. The way to get ahead in the Democratic Party is, has really changed a lot. In the old days, if you go back to the 1980s, there used to be a lot more swing voters. You know, Joe Biden in 1984, when he ran for Senate, he got 60% of the vote on the same day that in his state that Ronald Reagan got 60% of the vote. That means that nearly half of the state voted for Joe Biden and for Ronald Reagan. And, you know, the way that you get ahead now is less figuring out how to give speeches at union halls and much more how do you raise a lot of online money. And then the other piece is getting liberal journalists and online people on Twitter to be excited about you. The purpose of public facing communication should be to persuade people. But I think right now, no one in the Democratic Party is really approaching communication that way. 
I know you're limited in how much you can say about this, and I think you signed an NDA about it, but you were let go from your previous employer, also a data analysis company, because during the height of the summer unrest in 2020, you tweeted that, you know, that can have a political cost on Democrats when there is upheaval. I think you referred to the precedent of Richard Nixon and some of the in 1968 and that that trouble, and how nonviolent protest has a very different effect and can have a different political impact. Can you what, what can you tell us about that episode? Yeah, absolutely. It was very controversial. And I, I think that it does highlight that very few people, either voters or liberals, like actually, you know, believe that there's anything offensive about saying that nonviolent protests are effective or that violent protests aren't. But in the progressive movement, you're talking about the most left-wing 0.1% of the population. It's something that can really be quite controversial. You know, I think in the party, uh, a lot of people think that the problem with Democrats is that we're eggheads, that we care too much about policy, that we talk too much about issues, and that we just need to forcefully communicate our values. You know, but the problem is that swing voters don't share our values. If they did, they would already be liberals. Uh, Our values are actually alien and strange to them. The only reason people have ever voted for us um, is because of issues and the concrete things that we've been able to provide them. And if we switch to a world where instead of providing people concrete things and representing people and meeting people where they are, to instead kind of being the id of, you know, the intelligentsia, that will split the country in the wrong way and we won't, we won't have any power. You've given us a whole lot of diagnosis there of what's gone wrong. So let's shift on to remedy. What can Democrats practically do? And I don't mean in a big long-term structural way. I'm thinking there are elections in 14 or 15 months for the House and for the Senate. What can they do to close that gap? I like to say that you know the median voter in the United States is 50 years old and doesn't have a college degree. And that's just a fact that should be stamped on everyone's foreheads in every single strategic decision that we make. If you look at, you know, this group of voters that we need to win, they largely agree with Democrats on a whole host, though not all, of the Democrats' economic priorities, but they disagree on a lot of different social issues. And I think that that's a tension that nobody wants to say forthrightly, but it means that if we're going to win, we have to focus our agenda and focus our message on the parts that they agree with us on, which are primarily economic popular issues, and keep the conversation away from things that are very polarizing. If you look at voters who agreed with us on healthcare and disagreed with us on immigration, Barack Obama won those voters. He got 60% of those voters. And Hillary Clinton got 40% of those voters. And that switch was the entire election. And we need to be really mindful and calculated and strategic about what we choose to talk about and the language we choose to use so that we can appeal to these people who have you know, turned away from us. And also, who does the talking? I've seen you said elsewhere that Democrats should adopt for House and Senate races, maybe even national races, more black candidates, maybe more Hispanic candidates, because not because of reasons of diversity or inclusion, but because, in your words, they are frankly just less weird than your average white Democrat potential candidate. Just just tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, you know, I, I think the Democratic Party is very lucky that we have a bunch of economically progressive, culturally moderate people in our party. You know, we have a bunch of people who believe in God, a bunch of people who have normal middle class values. But 
most of them are non-white. And, you know, I think that in the party, there was this traditional idea that you can't run a black candidate in the South because voters would be racist. But we just had a great natural experiment in Georgia. You know, we had two candidates running at the exact same time, Ossoff and Warnock. And Warnock not just did better uh, than Ossoff, but actually did better in whiter areas. The difference was largest in whitest areas. He won over swing voters and did better with working class non-white voters. You know, it's better to have a a religious black pastor running in the deep South than it is to have a nerdy 33-year-old liberal um, white person, because all of these cultural values are, are more important now than traditional race signifiers. As we move towards the end, I want to, I'm just curious, this notion of people in politics tend to be weird. And I think, you know, I get that um, because they're obsessed with politics and they do it all the time. W- why would that be a Democrat only problem? Surely Republicans have activists and candidates and, you know, journalists and policy thinkers who are just as out of touch with the median voter. And I'm just wondering why, you know, Republicans who are drawn, say, to a, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of the, you know, more extreme figures in the Republican Party, why does that not seem to cause as much damage to Republicans in terms of being out of step as the phenomenon you've been describing on the left, which puts Democrats out of step and out of sync with average Americans? You know, there's two points here. I think the first is that the Republican Party has engineered a coalition where they can win a trifecta with 48% of the vote. And Democrats are in a situation where we need 52% of the vote. And so that just means that we just have less latitude to do unpopular things than they do. And I think it's really unfair You can think about things as you have like an unpopularity budget of how many things you can do until you lose the election. And theirs is just much larger than ours because the way our electoral system works and the coalitional choices that they've made. So that's the first point. But I'd say the second point is that if you look at who's overrepresented, you know, it's not ideological extremists. I mean, it is, but it's really super educated people run basically all institutions, you know, for better or for worse. And so that means that if you look at the elite of the Republican Party, I think it does harm them in that the people who work in the Republican Party care much more about, say, lowering taxes or taking away people's health care. And if you look, you know, one of the reasons I think Donald Trump lost, like if you look at his approval ratings, his lowest point was when he tried to repeal Obamacare or when he, you know, cut taxes on the wealthy. And so, you know, I think it is it is a challenge for them too. And I think Donald Trump's power was that he was able to kind of wipe away this previous Republican consulting class and just do the obvious thing of promising not to cut Social Security and Medicare. And David, there'll be people listening to this who will be thinking, yeah, I get what you're saying about American politics, but it really resonates with, for example, where I'm sitting, the politics of Britain. So much of what you said about how political parties end up out of step with their electorates and particularly how this can be a problem afflicting the left. How much have have you noticed that the patterns and trends you've spotted in the data of American politics are going on around the world? I think that these trends are happening basically everywhere. But I think the US and Britain are really different in that we have first past the post, you know, minoritarian electoral systems. I think this is a really underappreciated point in British politics, which is, you know, the bias of the current British constituency map toward Brexit is actually larger than the pro-Trump bias of the electoral college. You know, it is not possible to 
consistently hold power and be able to pass laws unless we roll back a decent chunk of this education polarization and kind of return to the bases that we had 10 years ago. It's gripping stuff, David. It really is. Now, on the podcast, we do like to ask our guests a what else question. And this week, I know we all have the resignation of Andrew Cuomo in mind as governor of New York, finally resigning this week after an investigation concluded he had sexually harassed 11 women, charges which he denies. So what impact do you think that will have? And scandal in general, because there, there's plenty of it about, what impact will all that have, if any, on midterm voters when they come to cast their ballots next year? Well, you know, obviously what happens in New York doesn't affect the rest of the country. But politics is still about people, you know, less and less every single year. But there is a very close recall election happening in California right now that you know, was triggered by Gavin Newsom flouting uh, COVID regulations. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for randomness in the system. We might have a right-wing talk show host as the governor of California, a state where Joe Biden got more than 60% of the vote. We lost the North Carolina Senate race in 2020 because the Democratic candidate there, Cal Cunningham, sent some explicit text messages to someone who was not his wife And, you know, I've looked at the data and I'm pretty convinced that had that not happened, we would have won that race. And then politics would have been very different. We would have had 51 seats instead of 50 and we would be looking at a totally different legislative environment. So all of this stuff is very important. David Shaw, head of data science at Open Labs. Thanks so much for coming on Politics Weekly Extra and for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. And that is all from me this week. For anyone wanting to hear more about what's happening with Andrew Cuomo, Today in Focus spoke to The Guardian's Ed Pilkington this week about the governor's life this last year. Just search for Today in Focus. And make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly, which is a special profile on the Labour Party's deputy leader, Angela Rayner. For the next two weeks, we'll be delving into the archives to pick two of our many favourite episodes from the last few months, so do make sure to listen to those. And please do keep sending us any questions or comments or suggestions for things you'd like us to cover or about the state of US politics in general, so we can pick those up after the summer break. You can send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com or you can tweet me directly on Twitter. My handle there is at Friedland. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer is Esther Opokujeni, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there, and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. <laughs>